This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 196th episode, we discuss the first feature film from Joel and Ethan Cohen, Blood Simple from 1984. Directed and written by Joel Cohen with Ethan Cohen, music by Carter Burwell, starring John Getz as Ray, Francis McDormand as Abby, Dan Hedea as Julian Marty, M. Emmett Walsh as Lauren Visser, and Sam Art Williams as Maurice. Recognition for this movie, Blood Simple, was first shown at the Sundance Film Festival on January 18, 1984, but would not be officially released until October 1984, making this its 40th anniversary this year. It would go on to win the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival that year. While the box office was only $2.7 million worldwide, it received mostly critical acclaim. This is both the feature film debut for both Joel and Ethan Cohen as producers-slash-directors, but also for three-time Oscar winner Francis McDormand. Blood Simple currently holds a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, an 84 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we begin each week, what is your relationship to this movie? Well, this movie, you said they had a low box office uh, receipt, but this movie came out about the time HBO really started getting big and getting in most homes. And I remember this movie being on HBO and coming home after a, a basketball game or a football game or something like that out with my friends. And my dad was watch, started watching it. And I sat down and watched it with him and thought, wow, this is really good. And then I started recommending it to the people I knew. And I know a lot of my friends watched it off of HBO and it kind of developed a cult following on HBO. So this is my first time watching it. So I have no prior relationship with it, but it struck me as a fairly well-crafted movie for first-time directors. It's very tightly compact. It's got a very small, if not significant, cast. I mean, I only credited a few people in the starring roles, but there are a few peripheral people that are also in the movie, but not very many. And still, they're able to contain a fairly advanced story within a very tight window of budgetary constraints. I think the film was only made for like just over a million dollars back in 84. And it was somewhat self-financed by doing a lot of fundraising, which I'll have a, a few more comments on a little later. And it's kind of a skeleton key for understanding if this is what they choose to do with their first film, understanding their later work, which Either you get the Fargo side of things, which blends a lot of their comedic humor sense with the crime element that they do in this movie, or you get the, I would say, other side of it, of crime where it's this dark. And I would compare this moderately to eventually No Country for Old Men, which is their, I, for most people, crowning achievement. I think Fargo is a better movie, but your mileage may vary. 
Well, yes. Okay. First of all, M. Emmett Walsh was a longtime character actor who was kind of underappreciated around television and, and Hollywood. This kind of helped propel his career into a little bit higher stratus. Dan Hyeda, if you if you have never seen Cheers, where he's playing Nick Torelli, uh, or Tortorelli, who was Carla's ex-husband, he was so good. He p- could play a character that was absolutely, totally sleazy. And uh, you just love to hate him because he was so horrible. But he's made out a career of doing very similar parts. Like, it's very easy to see him in this role. Yes, it, it is. I mean, he's he's has a little bit broader, but there's just something about it, the way he looks and the dark complexion, the dark hair. He kind of looks like a villain, and that's kind of where he's been kind of typecast. Although he's able to do it with some level of comedic flair at times, and other times it's the dramatic flair that uh, can come out. And I think he can do both, or he's done both very well. I relate him to Chaz Palminteri, who most people would either recognize from The Usual Suspects or A Bronx Tale. They have some type of mannerism that feels either slick or oily. And I I know I'm kind of dancing around Italian uh, by saying it, but there's just kind of a operator look and they they've been able to place themselves in certain roles by just being exactly typecast like that for, I don't know how long. Well, there's a lot of Hollywood actors who ended up becoming more or less typecast. In fact, that might actually be a uh, interesting show at some point. Char- or typecast character actors. I can see it. Walter Brennan. Oh no no no! I I think there's a there's a few different ranges to Walter Brennan. Uh, a couple, not a huge. You cannot amount. see him in the movie that I just watched for the first time, A Bad Day at Black Rock, and then think he's the same guy from Rio Bravo. <laughs> okay. Or the preacher from Sergeant York. Yes. Claude Akins, who was the uh, uh, shiftless brother in Rio Bravo. He always played the heavy. It wasn't until he got on TV and played Sheriff Lobo that he got to kind of get away from that. Robert Patrick. He seemingly is always the, like, gruff, gritty-sounding villain. Going back to Terminator 2. It would be kind of fun, so maybe we should play around with that at some point in time. I'll put it on the ideas list. Okay. So what is the movie about? Betrayal and revenge, and how both can ultimately cause you to lose everything. Honestly, betrayal and revenge could just be inserted into any Coen Brothers movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Except for maybe like, I don't know. I haven't seen Raising Arizona yet, but I can't imagine that it's part of that. (laughs) I have never seen it. I've seen excerpts, but yes. But even like The Big Lebowski has elements of that in there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks a lot of this movie comes down to misunderstandings and miscommunication. There are just so many things within the 
very small core of people that are involved in the cast where had they just had a clarifying conversation or had Ray and Abby actually like talked instead of being in this weird innuendo through the second half of the film where maybe (laughs) certain events wouldn't have transpired in the way they did. Sure. I, I, I can see that. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be an interesting character study to do some sort of like psychology profile of where or how they came into this kind of uh, template, you know, because so many of their films have this this trope going on continuously throughout the movie. There's got to be a reason why either they really fell in love with something that had this or they've had some experience at it or something. I don't know. You can see to a degree certain themes, certain subjects following people throughout their career, whether it's, I guess, the supernatural chase being for Spielberg or for that matter, anything having to do with World War II, which he got obsessed with after Schindler's and Saving Private Ryan, or it's jazz for Damien Chazelle. You know, certain directors just return to stuff often over and over and over again. The British Isles for John Ford or just simply Westerns, the vistas of New Mexico and Utah, or for that matter, Tarantino, either the first half being these almost black exploitation era 70s crime drama thrillers, and the second half being the righting of wrongs within history. <laughs> or Scorsese constantly trying to uh, deal with his own feelings of guilt as an altar boy in the Catholic Church. A lapsed Catholic? Yes, everything's about redemption, sin. Yeah. And now I understand he's he's slated to do another. Yeah, he's doing another film, which is based on a book. Apparently, it's supposed to be only 80 minutes, which is probably half the length of any other movie he's made in the last 20 years. (laughs) Yeah. But... It's supposed to be based on this book of a Japanese writer reinterpreting the life of Jesus through his perspective as a Japanese man. Yes. Okay. I mean, it's Marty, so I'll see it, of course, but... He'll keep making movies until his eyebrows grow over his eyes. (laughs) Yeah, probably. All right, so let's give some more background on this movie. Dad, do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Blood Simple, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, is a neo-noir thriller that unravels a web of deceit and violence in the sweltering Texas landscape. The film follows a bar owner, played by Dan Hedea, who suspects his wife, portrayed by Frances McDormand, of infidelity. When he hires a private investigator, played by M. Emmett Walsh, to confirm his suspicions, the situation takes a dark and twisted turn. The Coen brothers masterfully blend suspense, dark humor, and stark visuals, creating a tension-laden narrative where misunderstanding and ruthless choices lead to a series of unpredictable and bloody consequences. Blood Simple is a gripping exploration of human frailty and moral ambiguity, showcasing the Coen brothers' distinctive style and storytelling prowess. Thank you. Did you know? On the advice of Sam Raimi... The Coens went door-to-door, showing potential investors a two-minute trailer of the film they planned to make. 
They ultimately raised 750000 in a little over a year, enough to begin production of the movie. Did you know? The director's cut is actually three minutes shorter than the feature release. Probably the only time I've ever seen that. <laughs> yeah. Did you know? Though M. Emmett Walsh's character is never called by name in the film, he is named Lorne Visser in the script. In the film, the name Lorne can be seen engraved on the Zippo lighter. Also engraved on the edge of the lighter is Elk's Man of the Year. Did you know? Joel Cohen and Frances McDormand first met when she auditioned for the part of Abby. They married after the release of the film. Did you know? The title is based on a phrase from the Dashiell Hammett novel, Red Harvest, in which blood simple is a term coined to describe the addled, fearful mindset people are in after a prolonged immersion in violent situations. Blood Simple writers Joel and Ethan Cohen later made Miller's Crossing, which is loosely based on that novel. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 197th episode, we head back to the old west of Italy with the first of the Dollars Trilogy. <laughs> A Fistful uh, of Dollars yes. from 1964, written and directed by Sergio Leone, music by Ennio Morricone, starring Clint Eastwood, Marianne Koch, and Joseph Egger. Or it could be Joseph. I don't know. It could be a soft J. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, best performance is up. Who do you have down? I have M.M. Walsh. I think he, uh, <laughs> he he was such a great character. From the laughing at the uh, most dark things possible and to some of the lines, a couple of which I don't know if I want to repeat. <laughs> Uh, but he, uh, he, he, to me was the perfect person for that part. I went with the very basic answer of Joel and Ethan Cohen. It takes a lot to get your first movie made and for it to be of this level of quality that people are still talking about it 40 years later, I think is another accomplishment. When you talk about directorial debuts, there are not a lot of them that you can go back to and see often. I mean, if you're a certain renowned director, you can. Spielberg with Duel, even though it was technically a TV movie. The following for Christopher Nolan, which is on the Criterion Collection. I just got that in last year, and I thought it was fantastic. I actually think it might be a top five movie for him, just personally. It's also one of his shortest. Actually, it is his shortest by far. But there are certain ones that you can kind of point back to. Going back and watching the short version of Whiplash so that they could do the long feature-length version of Whiplash, which we both think is fantastic, obviously, and we did an episode mm -hmm. on it about eh, two, three years ago. There are certain ones that you can point back to, but it, it takes a lot of belief, a lot of faith, a lot of skill for not only people to see your talent, your genius, your idea, but to get it made, there's a gumption that is needed. And so because this is their baby, because this is what eventually propels them into being directors of renown that we know now, I have to kind of do the basic song and dance and say it's them. 
even though I think there are several people you could go with in this category. Well, along the lines of first films, I'll add to that three in my ultimate that I think are phenomenal films, top 100 films, and there are three directorial debuts. Citizen Kane for Orson Welles, Maltese Falcon for John Huston, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf for Mike Nichols. See, the first two I wouldn't necessarily put in the same category because they were part of the studio system in a certain regard. I view Citizen Kane as much more auteuristic because he had such freedom, and it was probably the only time he ever had that level of freedom to make exactly what he wanted partly due to the fact that Citizen Kane box office wise was somewhat of a flop at its release. But Maltese Falcon, John Huston was just fitting a studio director. And while it's a really good movie, I think it's a much different movie than Reservoir Dogs or I think Sex, Lies, and Videotape is Soderbergh's first film. Certain ones that are made from auteurs at the beginning of their career that truly is their first I think are a much different mean streets for Scorsese, things like that. I would put them in a different category. Lady bird. Yeah. Lady bird would fit into that. Get out. I would fit into that. Some more recent debut films. Okay. Anyway, best secondary. I went with John Getz as Ray. I really responded well to his character. I thought comparative to what I've seen him in later in his career, which is kind of like, middle management white guy in a suit. He plays a completely different part. And so it was nice to kind of see his range overall that he was at one time a different actor. So I really responded well to his character in this movie. I also thought he played a very good concerning slash nervous, I don't know, lover for the course of the movie, but was still very much in control of himself even though I think he has some very questionable handling of evidence. Choices? Yeah. Decisions? Sure. Yeah. I went with Dan Hedaya. I just loved the uh, malevolence of his character and the grappling he was doing. He wanted revenge, but by the same token, it made him ill to think about it. No, certainly. And I think the conversation that he has with John Getz's character, Ray, on the steps of the bar is very indicative of that. He's angry. He wants revenge. But at the same time, he realizes the folly of it. And quite frankly, I think Hadea played the part extremely well because at one time, having done some family law work, I don't think you, unless you've been through it completely, can understand the devastation about infidelity. Most charismatic, I have Francis McDormand. Now, most times, especially in a modern setting where she's won two of her Oscars, I haven't thought that Francis McDormand was very attractive. I know she's, you know, in her 60s at this point. Mm. But... I'm like, why is this person necessarily like a leading actress? And then I see this movie and I'm like, oh, I get it now. She was hot in this movie. Mm. Okay. So I don't know if uh, there are a few other roles that uh, from the early on Cohen movies 
I know she's in Raising Arizona. I don't know if she's in Barton Fink or Miller's Crossing. I haven't seen either of those. But I thought that uh, her allure worked well within the course of the film that ultimately she's the center of all activity because she is that attractive. I think to some extent she um, is an actress who does not so value her appearance that she's got to have work done. Can't be seen out without like $20,000 worth of makeup, that type of thing. She's been more natural. So she's aged. Okay. So most of us have. I think I've aged. Uh, Even in the last, well, basically since we started the show. Yeah. (laughs) There isn't much uh, left of my hair that's not uh, white or uh, gray. Yeah, now you're just to the point where your hair is starting to thin naturally, like most old men. Sure. I still have to have it thinned when I go to the barber. In certain places, I can understand that. Even me, who's slowly losing their hair and has a a fairly pronounced forehead anymore, still has to have it thinned in certain places. So, my most charismatic, I went with the Coen brothers. Because when you watched this film, you knew automatically that they had this bizarre look on film and entertainment. That there was a formula that they had established of dark humor and violence and revenge that kind of runs through a lot of their films, most of their films, if not all of their films. And I think they set themselves up as being something that people necessarily gravitate to by their name alone. And that in and of itself, I think, is one of the definitions of charisma. While I certainly don't condone America's appetite for violence, it's quite obvious that we have one, given that some of the more successful directors of the past 40-plus years, Scorsese, Tarantino, De Palma, and the Coen brothers, Peckinpah, got their name basically on the backing of a lot of violence in their movies. Mm-hmm. So maybe that that's an examination of why we're so fascinated with all of those things more than anything. But I guess, I mean, I can't say that I wasn't riveted by the film. Maybe if it's part of it, you know, people complain about our gun culture and maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's just something inbred in us because, you know, as, as men, as boys, we played war. We played cowboys and Indians, and we had guns. I remember as a kid, and I'm trying to remember what Peck and Paw film I saw. And so we would like shoot each other, and then we would die in slow motion. And it wasn't just me. I think that was a common thing among a lot of men of my age when they were small boys. Best scene. So I have the initial scene of them driving, which unless you have the subtitles on, I thought it was a little hard to hear uh, some of the distinct, let's say, lines that are being delivered to that. And it is some of the setup of the film. So I thought that was a little bit odd of a choice, especially not seeing their faces for a good like four or five minutes. Uh-huh. Then I have Visser and Marty that's being 
Walsh and Hidea's characters kind of meeting up for the first time with him showing the pictures and that sort of thing. Then I have Ray talking to Marty, the scene I mentioned before where he's on the steps and they kind of have this hashing out argument, Ray quits, etc. Then I have Visser killing Marty. So I skip a little bit forward in time, but I think that's a pretty visceral scene within the course of the movie. I have Ray stumbling in on the scene and then trying to clean it up. I have actually burying Marty when he tries to take him out to the field, which is another intense scene. I have, I would say, the final confrontation between Ray and Abby, where they're kind of misfiring and he stumbles in and he's about to admit that he cleaned up the scene and she doesn't know what he's talking about, but they've clearly gone in separate directions as to what they think has happened. And then I have the final attack. Are there any others you would like to add? No, I think, you know, when I was looking at your list, I think that covered everything. Yes. At least everything significant. Yeah. I thought that that covered the majority of the, big scenes in this one. As far as the best scene, though, I have the final attack. From a stylistic point of view, everything that kind of goes into that scene, the setup where she dreams Marty, and then Ray getting fired upon, obviously he's got to be dead. Her trying to knock out the lights with her shoe, eventually stabbing him through the hand, through the windowsill, and then him firing the gun so that there's the light holes from the other room to her stunned anticipation of what's going to happen next, but inability to act. I mean, I thought that was by far the most successful scene of the movie. And a lot of it is non-dialogue. A lot of it is the visual and the sound that's coming forward from that. It's one of the better scenes of true visual storytelling that I thought was in the film. Okay. I have, I went a little different direction. I went with burying Marty. Not only did Ray destroy Marty's relationship and send Marty down a path of revenge to ultimately kill uh, Ray and his his, uh, wife, Ray now, in order to protect her, ends up killing Marty on top of it. So Marty gets screwed twice by Ray both setting this chain of events going forward and then ultimately in his death. And so I, to me, thought that that was a scene that really was so well played out. <laughs> the, really, the, the antagonist of the entire film ends up being the antagonist twice. And I thought that was such a stroke of genius that I gave it my best scene. So I also had the final attack as my favorite scene. Did you have a different one? I I had my favorite scene. I had Vesser kills Marty because that one came out of left field. It had been a long time since I'd seen the film, probably uh, 38, 37, 38 years. And the fact that he shoots him kind of, uh, Should we give a spoiler alert for a 40-year-old film? I don't think I ever give spoiler alerts anymore for what we're discussing. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. The fact that he shoots him, to me, that was my favorite scene because it just took a turn that you were not expecting. And I just love those when they happen and they seem to fit. Sometimes quick turns or twists in a film don't feel natural. They feel contrived. This felt so natural and so in character that I just loved it. See, I go the opposite direction. I thought it was telegraphed for a mile, and so I didn't really respond that well to it. In fact, I'm very confused by it, which will be in my remaining questions or my nitpicks, because I don't think that it made a whole lot of sense for what was happening so far in the film. And with the way that they build up to that moment, there are several telegraphed, I would say suspenseful moments where you clearly see him reach his hand into his pocket and start fidgeting with something. I assumed at that point it was going to be a gun. So when he pulls it out and shoots him, Marty's more stunned than I am. Okay. I obviously disagree. So what do you have for most indelible? Visser with the knife in his hand. I mean, honestly, the, the first thing I think about with this film is going to be that where he's got it reaching around the windowsill to try and open it, and she stabs him in the hand, and then slowly backs away, and he's shooting into the next room. And the light from the bullet holes, just as they fire off, and I love that shot. That camera work during that scene was amazing. Well, punching a hole so that he can get around and pull the knife out so he can get his hand out, I have that as my most indelible moment as well. Again, I, I think that's the best visual storytelling for me from a setup, from all the things that are going on within that scene. I have some questions from it in the end of it, but I thought that was the most well-executed as far as a filmmaker. And to me, that scene is the one that truly puts a stamp on, this is like an auteur that we need to watch out for type of thing. That was the scene that stuck out to me. So that looks like a good spot to take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list, that is every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast and find us the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 182 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Unfortunately, we have a rather long list. Peter Burkos, 101, American Sound Editor. The Hindenburg, Slapshot, Touch of Evil, The Sting, The Great Waldo Pepper, won a Oscar in 1975. Mickey Cottrell, 79, American film publicist and actor. My own private Idaho, Volcano, and a film I loved, Ed Wood. Christian Oliver, 51, German actor. Speed Racer, The Good German. Saved by the Bell, The New Class, and Valkyrie. Yeah, this was the one that if you had read in the news this week that there was an actor who passed away while flying a plane in the Caribbean with his two daughters, that was him. It was uh, rather sad, I'll say that, without saying too much more. Harry Johnson, 81, American actor. 
Battlestar Galactica, Law and Order, Need for Speed. He was also an author. Larry Collins, 79, American guitarist in the band The Collins Kids. He also was a songwriter. His most famous song was Delta Dawn. Great song, by the way. Sarah Rice, 68, American actress. Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, and was a singer. Yes, I do want to make a clarification here. She was the original portrayal on Broadway of Sweeney Todd. She originated one of the characters. Yeah, Stephen Sondheim production, if I remember correctly. I believe so, yes. Aiden uh, Canto, 42, a Mexican actor, was in X-Men Days of Future Past, The Cleaning Lady, Designated Survivor, and The Following. Cindy Morgan, 69, American actress, was in Tron and Caddyshack. I'll always remember her in Caddyshack. Lacey Underall. Frankly, most people of your generation will remember her always for Caddyshack. Yes. David Soule, 80, American-British actor, was in the TV show Starsky and Hutch, Magnum Force, and singer Don't Give Up on Us. Glennis Johns, 100, British actress Mary Poppins and the Sundowners, won a Tony in 1973 for a little night music which i believe is also a stephen sondheim musical okay so we commemorate these all here with a moment of silence in their honor thank you it's season five and we still have no great transition to best funniest lines but here we go visser <laughs> The world is full of complainers, and the fact is, nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. Now go on ahead. You know, complaining. Tell your problems to your neighbor. Ask for help. And watch him fly. Now, in Russia, they got it mapped out so that everyone pulls for everyone else. That's the theory, anyway. But what I know about is Texas. And down here, you're on your own. Ray. Never point a gun at anyone unless you mean to shoot him. And if you shoot him, you better make sure he's dead. Because if he ain't dead, he's going to get up and try to kill you. That's the only thing they taught us in the service that's worth a goddamn. The Marty speech that I was talking about earlier to Ray in the back of the bar. You a fucking marriage counselor? What are you smiling at? I'm funny, right? I'm an asshole? No, 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 no. That's not what's funny. What's funny is her. What's funny is that I had you two followed. Because if it's not you she's sleeping with, it's someone else. And what's really going to be funny is when she gives you that innocent look and says, I don't know what you're talking about, Ray. I ain't done anything funny. But the funniest thing to me right now is that you think that she came back here for you. That's what's fucking funny. Ray, he was alive when I buried him. Visser, you know... You know, a friend of mine a while back broke his hand and put it in a cast. Very next day, he falls, protects his bad hand, and he breaks his good one. So he breaks it too, you know. So now he's got two busted flippers. So I says to him, Creighton, I says, I hope your wife really loves you because for the next five weeks, you can't even wipe your own goddamn ass. <laughs> That's the test, ain't it? Test of true love? 
Marty, I'll give you $10,000. This, sir. Now I do a murder. Two murders. Trust you not go simple on me and do something stupid. I mean, really stupid. Now why should I trust you? For the money. This, sir. For money. Yeah, that's a right smart amount of money. In Russia, they make only 50 cents a day. I'm out. I'm out as well. Okay. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Go ahead. So I think this is a fairly easy one in my estimation. It's a relatively little known directorial debut for most of the audience at large. If you ask the general population if they've heard of this movie, I would guess that one in 20 might because they're a, a real film fan like we are. But given that it has the enduring legacy of creating one of, or I guess two of the lasting auteur, easily recognizable named directors, Joel and Ethan Cohen, and a three-time Oscar winner in her own right, Frances McDormand, you got to say at least that gets a fairly high number on the industry side of things. So because there is good critical acclaim and continues to be after the fact, even though I wouldn't say it's like a perfect movie and with all of those tangential outcomes, I'm going to go for a four for the industry and I'm going to go for a one for the general public. I have a five. Okay. For the industry, I agree with all of your comments. Actually, the film that really got them going was was uh, Raising Arizona, because I remember when that came out and how that became kind of a, a fairly well-known film. Actually, I'm going to go with a 3.5 for Legacy based on that. It started the process, but I think they gained momentum as they went along. It was Fargo that ultimately propelled them into the stratosphere for the public. I agree with you. This is not a well thought about movie. And actually this is one where within the, the release of it, because it was available on HBO, I'm giving it a higher mark in impact than I am on legacy because after people saw it, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't considered. In fact, uh, if you mention Blood Simple to most people, they don't know what you're talking about. I guess I'm going to go. I originally was going to go with a 1.5, but I'm going to go with your one. So I'm going to I'm going to go with a 4.5. So that's a 4.75 average between the two of us. Impact and significance. The industry, it was, I mean, there was a, a very mixed initial uh, critic review of the film. Some thought it was overly violent and pointless. And I remember Siskel and Ebert giving this two thumbs up because I used to watch them religiously when I was in college. So for the, uh, for the, Industry within that time frame, I'm going to go with a three because I think there was some momentum building that allowed them to propel. For the public, 
as I indicated, this was a film that was fairly popular on HBO. It ran for quite a while. And it was a film that I recommended to my friends and they recommended and it kind of became a little bit of a cult. It had a short shelf life, but it did. So I'm going to give it a two for the public because I think within that time frame, it was more well regarded. So five. So my scores on this isn't too terribly different from my legacy scores. I don't think this was a hugely impactful movie in the moment. They made one other movie within the first five years after its release, and that would be Raising Arizona from 87, which if that had its own critical acclaim, I think it was to itself. This is one of those where, much in the same way that I would relate the following from Chris Nolan, that it's probably a very little-known film, and its only recognition is going to be that that person made it. And so people, to be completionist, will go back and watch their stuff, even though I would say this has much bigger actors in it and an overall better production than that film originally did. His more, I would say, auteur festival type film ended up being Memento that really propelled him eventually. Uh I still don't think this is going to score terribly highly, although at least the recognition by certain critics of this movie propels it a little bit better for me. So I had a three on the industry side of things. But again, the audience score is going to be a one. It has relatively little imprint of what there is. It's mostly going to be film fans and people on the festival circuit. You might get a few people years later, but it's not one that necessarily stuck with people. So I have four overall. Okay. So that's a 4.5 between the two of us. Novelty. I don't think there's anything particularly original about this story. This is 1984, and if this wasn't covered as a subject material extensively during the 70s, I don't know what would have been. (laughs) I mean, infidelity, betrayal, murder, violence, private investigators. There's just not a whole lot in here that hadn't been done before. The difference between this movie and other ones that may be more forgotten, other than the status of its directors, it's just very well executed. So while I don't find this particularly original, the fact that you have these auteuristic flourishes, again, that final sequence to me is is what really separates this movie. Outside of the script writing, which I still think is pretty crisp, and that this is a fairly entertaining short movie. So I'm going to give this a 5.5. Boy, as you point out, the execution gives it points up because it was well done for relatively modest budget or low budget. They found actors who fit the roles, but um, boy... I'm having a hard time going above a five, which would be middle of the road for novelty, um, even with the execution, because it's such a it, it's such a well-worn trope. I mean, the equivalence of what they supposedly made the movie for would be about three million dollars in today's money, but that's still minimal by comparison <laughs> to some of the inflated yeah. budgets. I mean, that's probably not the snacks budget on an Avengers film. It probably cost $3 million for Nolan to put together the scene with the uh, 
uh, Oval Office with Gary Oldman uh, in Oppenheimer. You mean just for his prosthetics? Well, or at least to set up the the, uh, <laughs> the set for the Oval Office. So that's a 5.25 average between the two of us. Classicness. Do you want to go or do you want me to? I'll let you start. Okay. As a lawyer and one who actually did one of the first DNA-only sexual assault trials in Wisconsin when it first started, and you were on the actual DNA list, watching this and all of the poor issues with forensics, I mean, it's not aged well. I mean, they... The police would have been all over this in today's, and it just doesn't age well because so much of this was done when, I mean, I think most people are fairly sophisticated at this because they've watched it in films and television. You know, they watch those, uh, uh, what's the crime shows that, you know, they talk about forensic files and such like that. I think people have a greater awareness now. It's so bad, people would immediately go, oh, really? You're going to pick up the gun? You're going to try and wipe up the blood with your own shirt? Okay. So that part does not age well. So for classicness, the best I could do on this was a five. And I think that might be generous. You come at it from the same angles I do. I think this is a classic film in that... This is the precursor to all of their other crime thriller slash drama work. But I do have a lot of the same nitpicks. The question I would have is, is how far to grade that down for what are seemingly bad plot holes now? Or do you give a level of credence where the characters within the movie in a contemporary sense aren't watching CSI (laughs) or NCIS or listening to true crime podcasts like Serial. Yes. You know, the, there's a certain delineation point about the point when the actual first CSI came out. Not mm-hmm. CSI like Sydney or whatever the hell they're doing now. <laughs> yeah. Where the public in general turned a corner on a lot of this stuff. You could even trace it back, I would say, DNA-wise, to the OJ trial where America got its first real taste of DNA evidence, at large at least. So I wonder, since this is over a decade prior to any of that stuff, would that have even been in a consideration? I mean, this is full of a lot of nitpicks and little things having to do with the crime scene and handling of evidence and really poor choices overall. But I guess I'm not nearly as hard on it as you are because I don't see there being anything particularly disparaging about the rest of the material. So if we're working off of the normal seven, see, I'm somewhere between a half point to a full point off for the handling of that. But I see it as much more of a nitpick going back in time than I see it as a it hasn't aged well. I guess the one thing I'll throw out, and maybe this is edging me towards more of the full point off, is if I showed this to random person from the office X, are they going to have the same comments? And somebody watching it in a contemporary American sense, 
are they going to recognize that this was made in 1984 before all of that stuff really came to the forefront? My guess is no. So I guess I'll go with a six. Okay. So let me just throw this out. We'll be the first to admit that in like 1940, racial issues were much different than they are now in general. So therefore we shouldn't take that into account when we're looking at the classicness of a movie now. We often don't. Certain terminology, certain use of phrases, certain sensibilities, we have often looked the other way because of the time frame in which it was made. Okay. All right. Well. I mean, I don't know. It's it's to the interpretation of the individual when we score this. It has a l- certain level of subjectivity whether it bothers you or not. I'm just saying in this particular case, I'm trying to take a much broader look at it and saying, yes, I share some of those concerns given the fact that I think I have 10 remaining questions when we maybe have two most times. But, you know, I'll land at my six. So that's a 5.5 average between the two of us. Rewatchability. I could find myself rewatching this film very easily. I think there are pieces of it that I certainly didn't pick up on my first time through. I think it's interesting enough, given that I, I mentioned before, I think it's kind of a skeleton key to unlocking a lot of what the rest of their work is or is about knowing this is the precursor. This is what they chose to do to get their name on the map. So I gave it a three that I would probably put it on on my own. And if I catch it on anywhere where it's just on at this point, I think it's a a four for me. So I have a seven. To me, this is a film that's best enjoyed when you haven't watched it very often. Should it be you know, 40 years in between viewing? Probably not. Do you even have 40 years left? Well, probably not. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I would uh, place a bet on you hitting the century mark. Yeah. Unless there was like an advancement in robotics where you became morphed into like your consciousness was inserted into another body. Hmm. That'd be interesting. I don't find it outside the realm of possibilities. It's one of my kookier things. I I think that at some point we will all be fused into some type of like assisted AI, whether through bionics with like we become the bionic man type of thing, or we just get our consciousness inserted into a matrix kind of program. (laughs) Okay. But anyway, rewatchability. I went with a six. I'm not going to turn it off. And it might be something that I would recommend and watch with somebody else. All right, so that's a 6.5 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 80% for Google users and an 88% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.4 overall. So to recap the categories, we had a 4.75 for Legacy, a 4.5 for Impact and Significance, a 5.25 for Novelty, a 5.5 for Classicness, a 6.5 for rewatchability, and an 8.4 for audience score, giving us a final total of... 34.9. And currently placing it on our list, between Friday and The Help. Ooh. Not a very high number, is it? 
No, my projected score on this was a few higher, but uh, I think your scores, unfortunately, have kind of brought this down a bit. So it's uh, currently inside the bottom 10 of our, our greatness list. Not that I don't think this is a quality movie. In fact, I would say this is a probably a more quality movie than just about any of the films that are down in this area, the cellar dwelling. But it's just, it's not going to receive much for the greatness scores on a lot of things. No. Okay. Again, if you have any disagreement, I would say, frankly, we just don't get a lot of agreement commentary or emails or you know, responses to things of our scores. But if you have a disagreement with any of our scoring, you can find us on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast show page, ronnieduncanstudios.com backslash podcast. Our email is greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. Let's move to remaining questions, of which I have many. As I mentioned before, yes, they never explain what happened to the lighter. He's looking for it. He's looking for it. And it's never found. It just disappears. Yes. So where's the lighter? Doesn't matter because the lighter is what ultimately decides that he needs to get rid of them as well. How does a gun go off accidentally by kicking it? Well, that depends on the, uh, mechanism for the trigger some have what's called hair triggers and it can happen does it happen often no probably doesn't have a safety on either which is why you have a safety so it happens are there safeties on revolvers yes oh okay i mean i'm not a gun person so i have no idea how the hell are you expecting to get blood stains out of a wood floor there's a giant pool of blood you're not so at that point, what's the point of trying to clean it up? People are eventually going to find the scene and be like, hey, there's this big blood stain in the middle of the floor. I wonder what happened here. It's because people panic and they start doing things because that's what they think they should be doing. And in actuality, it's pointless. Like, I don't know, when you find the gun, don't touch it. <laughs> Yeah, or at least if you're going to touch it, use a cloth or put gloves on or something so your fingerprints aren't all over it. Or if you're going to handle the gun, why don't you just put it in Marty's right hand? I know it's unusual for someone to commit suicide by shooting themselves through the middle of the chest, but yeah. Another one that just blows my mind. How does Visser go from being on the roof because he's shooting at them with like a sniper rifle across the street to the hallway, several floors up in less than a few seconds. Like there's maybe a 30 to 45 second difference. That guy is not athletic. I don't think Usain (laughs) Bolt was getting down several flights of stairs from a rooftop running across the street, running up other stairs in 45 seconds. It's not happening. (laughs) Uh, yeah okay so is there like some lapse of time that we just like we're not a part of where she's trying to throw the shoe or yeah i i i don't know because yeah no i think mm walsh really was a speed demon in actuality (laughs) so Uh, why is she so paralyzed during the final confrontation 
Like she's just staring at the bullet holes in the wall. Like get out of the way, get down on the floor, something to get out of the pathway of the bullets. When you're under shock and you're in, you know, that level of terror, rationality does not equate with reality. Well, I'll forgive it a little bit because seemingly by her final line, she thinks Marty's the one attacking her. Well, of course, because she has no comprehension that anybody else would be interested in killing Ray and her. Who else is going to be there doing it? I mean, I guess, but is there some level of like domestic violence with Marty that is inferred from that final scene and from other parts of the movie that is never explicitly said? Well, okay. I mean, Let's I don't put, put it out of the realm of possibility given the time and place. It's Texas in the mid 80s. I know. But think about it. How many how many guys have their spouses or wives have an affair and their first thought is hire a contract killer? Yeah, just don't Google it at home for anybody listening. Yeah, I, I, I do think that the uh, FBI monitors that. Why does Visser turn on Marty? For the money. It's the safest play because what he does is he shoots and kills him. And then he leaves her gun in the scene. Nobody is going to be able to tie him to Marty. He's going to walk off with the 10 grand and they're going to blame his wife and or Ray. He can walk out of this free and clear. If he kills, and I'm drawing a blank as to her name in the sh- Abby. Abby. If he kills Ray and Abby, he still has to deal with. Ray, or excuse me, with Marty, because Marty knows who did it. And so the two of them are continually tied together. And there's a potential for further problems and blackmail and all kinds of stuff. Whereas if he kills Marty, he walks off with the money, they blame Abby and Ray, and he walks away scot-free. Nobody's going to come after him. Nobody's going to be able to figure out what happened. I guess I buy it. I guess that makes a lot more sense than I I had in the moment. And I'm certain that I would watch it differently this time around, knowing kind of the plot points. All right. The last question I have, I know the practical answer to this is, is it wasn't in the budget, but how does no one call the cops? They're shooting all over the place. Do you want the logical view or do you want the cynical view? Uh, what difference does it make when it comes to you? Just let me know which of the two you want. Why don't you give both? We're in the content business. All right. The logical view is, is that, you know, even though there's gunshots going on, how quickly they happen and how quickly it's a small area of Texas. You know, do you have a sheriff? I'm living in rural Wisconsin, which is at least fairly urban. And on a Saturday night we or Friday night, we have like a deputy sheriff on patrol in one corner of the county and another on the other corner of the county, you know, maybe they're on other calls and it takes them a while to get there. The cynical view is, is, hey, fuck, there's gunshots. Hey, it's Saturday night in Texas. (laughs) Everybody got together and shot off all their guns. Yeah, because what's the problem? I don't hear anybody screaming, so it can't be anything big. He's screaming when the knife is in his hand in an open okay, window. But that's 
But that has nothing to do with a gunshot. Come on. You you hear several gunshots and then a guy screaming through an open window. Somebody's going to call the cops. It's Texas in the 80s. Maybe. Maybe not. Okay. Well, any remaining questions for you? <laughs> no, not after that list, that cacophony of irritation. Uh, no. All right. Final thoughts for the week. Boy, I'm trying to think if I have any offhand. Really, I don't think. Oh, your mother and I watched the uh, holdovers uh, over the weekend. I enjoyed that a lot. I figured you Very would. Very well done. Paul Giamatti is fabulous. It deserves a Best Picture nomination. It's almost certainly going to get one. And he is almost a lock for Best Actor nominations at this point after the SAG nominations came out today. There are four locks in the main Best Actor category, and he's one of them. Who are the other three? Well, Bradley Cooper for Maestro, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer, and it looks like it's almost a guarantee that the film I will be seeing tomorrow, Jeffrey Wright, will be getting in for American fiction. Okay. So I caught poor things over last weekend, and if Barbie is the rather obvious feminist film, I would say Barbie is first wave feminism and poor things is second wave feminism to a degree that it's probably off putting to a lot of people in a way that Barbie is not. It's much more complicated. It's much more dense. It's dealing with a lot of complicated themes. It's irreverently funny. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, which was not at all. And I found it endearing, even if I still have quite a few films ahead of it overall for the year. I think it's worthy of a lot of the stature it's being given, but it's one that I would probably need a second viewing to unpack. Okay. As far as stuff on the show, shout out to our new listeners in Zimbabwe and Andorra. We are now up to <laughs> 115 total countries that we have been listened in. So we thank you to all of our worldwide Listeners and subscribers, we appreciate you. We also hit the 25,000 download mark for the first time. Well, actually, the only time. We can't go back and redo it again, but... Yes. We want to thank all of you that have been a part of that, all of our many guests, and all of our many listeners and subscribers. We very much appreciate you. We've had some very good few weeks, even in the weeks that we've been off. I did get some compliments today on our episode from last week, which we went a little out of the normal rhythm in order to do our top 10 lists of the best individual movie years that came out this morning and we had some very good compliments on it. So we appreciate all the feedback that we've gotten and the communities that we're now a part of as part of this show. This is our first official episode of season five. The list episodes, I never count towards the official, let's say, episode total. But we've released, I would say, in the range of about 220 different episodes on the feed in one capacity or another. I know we have our official 200th episode coming up in about three weeks. So long, strange trip. Certainly a lot of things have developed over the last four plus years. We're going to have our fourth anniversary here at the end of February, which is going to be weird, but <laughs> a lot of stuff yet to come as long as we're capable of doing this. So again, thank you to everyone that's been a part of it. We really, really, really do appreciate you. 
So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. When a man's got money in his pocket, he begins to appreciate peace. Next week for our 197th episode, we head back to the Old West of Italy with the first of the Dollars Trilogy, A Fistful of Dollars from 1964, written and directed by Sergio Leone, music by Ennio Morricone, starring Clint Eastwood, Marianne Koch, and Joseph Egger. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnydunkinstudios.com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on YouTube, Instagram, X, Letterboxd, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 